Hello everyone, welcome back to the What's Happening Podcast. I'm your host, Bryce Murray. We are on episode 4. Episode 4 is going to be a different episode. It's going to be something that I always wanted to do. Now, not saying that the other episodes isn't something that I wanted to do, because it is. I'm still going to be putting out that sort of content, that sort of... um, But this is what I really wanted to to do all along and it's research beast now i always wanted to know what mental health was like or how it was looked at or viewed in the 60s and 70s my stepdad he grew up around the 60s my mom grew up in the 70s into the 80s i always wanted to know how it was viewed because from what i was told that it wasn't really looked at upon and maybe it was just like a family thing but a lot of families didn't really express their feelings much or they didn't really say what was on their mind much at the time with this it's a, a lot of research went into this a lot this will include three parts or four parts three or four parts it's gonna go from the 60s all the way to now basically the next episode will be covering the 70s but in the 60s i always thought it was like a thing where it was like frowned upon or mental health was like not something that was talked about a lot from what i researched in the 60s that is when a lot of stuff started to go down guys along with you know uh, how patients were treated in psychiatric facilities and so forth and there was this mental illness was widely recognized as both an emotional and a physical problem in the 60s but medical professionals struggled to understand and explain its biological roots and policymakers struggled to develop effective responses to the needs of to the needs of the mentally ill now the 60s as i was saying is was a time where a lot of things went down in psychiatric facilities such as abuse towards patients and so forth so there was this thing that was started in the it actually started in the 40s which bled into the 60s so you had 40 the span of 40s 50s and then 60s it it was called deinstitution or deinstitutionalization. That is a big word, not easy to pronounce. <laughs> there was a lot of causes causes of it, but historians often look at three critical uh, causes or failings of American institutions in the 40s that bled into the 60s that would ultimately result in the shift of community institutions. Now, a lot of people, I guess, from what I've researched, wanted to take a lot of the patients out or they wanted more community resources for the mentally ill. Now, that is a good idea. That is because of what happened. Now, we'll, we're going to go into it of what happened with all the community stuff. But there is a shift in community institutions, disillusionment with treatment and absence of a creative effect in the violation of human rights. So there was a lot of stuff going on at these facilities where the patients weren't being taken care of. They were being abused. They weren't being looked after properly. There there's going to be a piece of information that I'm going to get into that is very, very weird, 
I found during uh, research. America's dissatisfaction with the mental institution system uh, was expressed in Albert Maso's article for Life magazine titled Bedlam, 1946. Now, now I know a lot of this information is pre-1960, but I'm kind of setting the tone of what eventually happened in the 60s. The article focused primarily on the degenerating conditions of living and care in America's asylums. Maisel's Maisel's article subtitled U.S. Mental Hospitals are a shame and a disgrace, in quotes, was an expose of two mental hospitals, Pennsylvania's Byberry and Ohio's Cleveland State. So Ohio, and I'm even from Ohio, and wow, wow, even Ohio was in on the abuse of the mentally ill. Now, a lot of, I know a lot of stuff has came a long way, but back then, I know it wasn't really understood, but I know it wasn't understood, but it was at a time where people thought like, hey, you know, this is a recognized problem and and we need to kind of have resources to to help people at this time. Starvation diets, in quotes, understaffing and widespread abuse occurring in hospitals. So that's what Maisel criticized in the article. And I'm guessing at that time when the article came out that a lot of people was like, Wow, word. That's what's going down in these hospitals. That's not good, which obviously I, I think I would think that some of the people that read those articles probably had family members in a lot of these institutions. And that's what that's what uh is sad really sad because if what if that was one of like one of that was one of my family members in an institution like that and they were being treated like that that would make me probably go insane guys honestly or anybody i care about even you guys even people that are listening to this right now probably have the same feelings that that if that was done and i'm gonna get into some very shady information here soon deinstitutionalization uh was a widespread idea that even spread outside of the U.S. And I'm pretty sure that I researched. Don't flame me. Don't don't get on me. But I'm pretty sure I didn't include it in my notes. But I think I read that it didn't start in the U. That it it caught on in the U.S. later. That it started in Europe. I'm pretty sure deinstitutionalization did not work because many countries failed because they closed institutions without careful planning, without implementing implementing community failures to establish basic infrastructure. So what I'm guessing is what I'm taking from that is many countries wanted to do this, but they did not heavily plan for it. They didn't have the necessary resources. I don't know. I had a talk with my with my mom about this subject and you know, my mom had some very very choice words for probably why that happened, uh, why the resources weren't given to the, to the communities, and I'm not really going to get into it because it's not based on this pod episode, but it, it's, she was, I think she was right. They were not given the, the amount of resources that they thought that they might have been getting or that, you know, they didn't plan carefully enough, which I think obviously they didn't with, there was no careful planning that went into this. 
because they didn't and from what I, I I don't really I'm not sure you know I'm I think that would be like government based I'm pretty sure a lot of that stuff um when I, I you know I've tried not to include the political side of things they didn't have the resources to integrate these mental health services that really could have helped people I feel like I feel like it really really could have helped people but now we're gonna move on to this is what I was very very interested in the treatment options that were available for people for people at this time and you know people that were suffering from mental health issues mental disorders all of that i find that to be very interesting from what i said is there's a quote that i seen where it says a growing literature is revealing the historical roles of nurses their work and the various treatments with which they were involved remarkably remarkably little however has been written by nurses themselves about the culture in which they work now y'all isn't that shady isn't that shady that there was a lot of abuse that was probably going on with these nurses at that time. And the fact that none of them wrote about any experiences that they had. And I did now, there was a patient, I, I am going to get into it. I did see that there was a patient uh, named David that wrote kind of like a little memoir. He basically... He basically wrote it out and explained how he went to 13 different institutions and whenever he got out, what happened. Now, I think that it's all shady, though, the nurses, because if you think about it, the nurses probably were the ones I'm assuming that were doing the abuse. Now, I'm not saying all nurses were doing abuse because I don't think that's the case. I don't think that ever would be the case. N you know, it, it would be singling out a lot of people, you know, and that's not right either. I don't think all the nurses were abusing the patients, but I think a lot of it went down f for a lot of these institutions to close down. And, you know, when these institutions closed down, I guess I was reading and they said that a lot of when they a lot of the institutions closed down prisoners that a lot of the mentally ill became prisoners um they went they got sent to prison instead of hospitals uh, to get the care that they needed and it was that was very very just terrible very terrible but the 60s was an era of great enthusiasm for new psychiatric drugs that had become available since the mid 50s so we're on to the treatment options and a lot of these treatment options I was seeing are mostly medicine based. Sorry guys, I'm gonna sip my tea real quick. But most of them were like, most of it was uh, psychiatric drugs that had become available since the mid 50s. David was chief, uh, chiefly prescribed uh, chlorprom chlorpromazine and sedatives. He was not given the ECT insula coma therapy narcotherapy and sometimes sometimes uh i don't know what this word is so i'm not even gonna say it but yeah there was a lot of narcotherapy a lot of in the 60s there was a boost in public in the public going to therapy and therapy surface and uh, services increased now the therapy services i feel a lot of it was like we're gonna get into it a lot of it was behavioral therapy it became really popular at that time due to aaron beck and 
that's what we're going to get into right now. Therapy services increased, and due to the therapy services increasing, there was also a lot of therapy breakthroughs. In the 1960s, Aaron Beck developed cognitive behavior therapy, which is short and short CBT, or cognitive uh, therapy since then. It has been extensively researched and found to be effective in large number of outcome studies for psychiatric disorders including depression, anxiety disorders, eating disorders, substance abuse, and personality disorders. That already takes care of a lot now. From what I was reading, isn't from what I was reading, I think they said that cognitive behavioral therapy is the most popular. So Aaron Beck, he was he was on something back in the sixties. He was on something new. Everybody was hopping on the Aaron Beck wave. <laughs> I guess, you know? Um but there was a lot of things too that cognitive therapy uh behavior Behavioral therapy also cured that I did not know or not cure but helped. You know, it, it was also a lot of psychiatric disorders. It also has been demonstrated to be effective as an injunctive treatment for medicate to medication for serious medical disorders such as bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. CBT has been adapted and studied for children, adolescents, adults, couples, and family. This activity renews the efficiency of CBT in both psychiatric and non-psychiatric disorders in the role of interprofessional team in using it to improve patient outcomes. I did read that whole thing from the from uh, the site, which I will include all the sources. I have all the sources for all this information. Yes, none of this is Wikipedia. I actually did not use Wikipedia throughout this whole entire research thing. I don't like using Wikipedia. I Don't you find that to, guys, don't you find that to be a little bit interesting though. Aaron Beck developed something that would be used years and years and years and years. And I'm pretty sure that when I like when I was going to therapy that it was something like that. You know, um, I have friends that go to that went to therapy for various different things, eating disorders, depression, and I wonder if it's the same for them if that's the type of therapy which I'm assuming but they also said something about or where I researched it said that it it could also help it could also help stomach issues yeah which is I was like how you know how but even with therapy breakthroughs at that certain point in time in the increase in therapy services most psych most psychotherapy of the 1950s and 60s just seemed to explain problems rather than rather than to solve them Long therapy sessions often went nowhere. Even important clinical psychologists voiced their doubts. So at that time, I think it, at that time when I was researching it, it said that most of these therapists knew the roots of the problems and what caused it, but a lot of the treatment, they didn't know how to treat it a lot of the time, which when you have, which I honestly think the brain is a one thing in the body that scientists are going to find or figure the least out about. So what I... You know, I know that sentence is all like fucked up, but what I mean is, I think that the brain is that the amount of information that uh, scientists have on our bodies, like our heart, our lungs, our liver, kidneys, everything to that nature. Like, if you think about it, scientists have a lot of that information, you know, of what causes certain things with our hearts and our lungs and our liver and our kidneys. But when it comes to our brain, I think that's going to be one thing 
thing that they're gonna know the least about because there's just so much and everybody's brain is different. Everybody's brain, I feel like, is different. Patience, and now we're going into the psych facility talk, and how patients were treated in these facilities. When patients were released from these facilities at times, they were not put in touch with any community service. And this is what I was talking about, that story about Dave and how he went to 13 or 14 different institutions. It was crazy. This, and the quote says, Dis, uh, discharge planning and follow-up treatment were notably absent from the from most of my hospitalization experiences in the 1960s. The process of transferring from one hospital to another was difficult and painful. In hospitals in Connecticut, Massachusetts, New York, and Pennsylvania, I had no knowledge of any discharge planning. It was not linked with community services when I was discharged. Isn't, isn't that actually fucked up? This guy spent a lot of years going 13, 14 different facilities, and when he went to those states, they didn't notify him when it came to any plans of him getting out, of them letting him out. It's like they just pretty much pushed him out being like, oh yeah, you know, you were in the facility, but there's nothing else that we can do, so we're gonna discharge you now, and we're not gonna put you in contact with anybody, or any community services, even if you need them. Isn't that messed up? That's the vibe I get. Like, that that's not me. That's, I'm trying not to, like, put words, like, in their mind, but that's the vibe that I'm getting, and I don't see how anybody can treat anybody like that. You know what I mean? Now, we're going, I think I've already answered this this question people did people understand the mental disorders at that time that's what I always wondered did people did medical professionals you know did they understand it did they know how to treat it? from what I'm getting they didn't know how to treat a lot of these medical professionals struggled to understand and explain its biological roots and policymakers again struggled to develop effective responses to the needs of the mentally ill and I think I've already went over that people didn't from what I'm getting there wasn't a lot of information about that you know I think a lot of people just didn't understand it you know there wasn't enough they uh there wasn't enough resources to research a lot of this stuff but what I thought was cool what I what I thought was really cool is in the mid 50s to the late 1960s with the goal of coordinating faculty collaboration across multiple university units and schools a trio of the nation's mental health researchers were recruited to UM to lead the new MHRI. Now we're going to go James Greer Miller, MD, PhD, former chair of the Department of Psychology at the University of Chicago, served as MHRI director from 1955 to 1967, a psychiatrist interested in behavioral sciences and general systems theory. Miller played a role, a pivotal role, in establishing the first inter-university computer communication network to support educational and research effort. That's what I'm talking about. That's exactly what I'm talking about. James Greer Miller, the GOAT, the GOAT. So he wanted, he wanted to research this stuff, to understand it, to understand what, why these things happen, why some people have what they have when some people don't. That is always interesting. And you know, we got 
Ralph Waldo Gerard, MD, PhD, was named MHRI's first director of laboratories. Gerard, who has been called the father of neuroscience, in part because he is credited with coining the term neuroscience, was one of the era's uh, preeminent neuropsychologists. His many contributions to the field include the invention of the, of the microelectrode, making possible the first measurements of electrical properties of muscle and nerve cells. I actually, we learned about cells in sixth grade, you know, like DNA, mitochondrial DNA, and you know, how the cells looked, how the plant cells looked. A major study of the biological basis of schizophrenia, and I find that to be interesting because as, say a lot on this subject, but as I think I stated in another previous episode that my mom's dad had schizophrenia, and my mom never knew her dad, so she didn't really get to, you know, be around him, but apparently he had schizophrenia. The use of computers to correlate multiple lab findings without prejudice and basic clinical studies of memory formation. The GOAT. Another GOAT. And then we got Anatole Rappoport, PhD, was MHRI's third founding member, a mathematical psychologist. Intrigued by game theory, Rappoport influenced many colleagues into applying mathematical approaches to behavior and social problems. In many ways, his work foreshadowed today's focus on integrating neuroscience with big data to understand neural function and the biological roots of behavior. Ahead of their time, this trio pioneered the study and application of the complex systems theory and facilitated cross-campus collaborations that advanced concepts as diverse as diverse as lipid biochemistry, game theory, and social behavior during war. I find that to be most interesting. Those guys are the GOAT really for real because out of all of that, out of all that research, those were the only three guys when I when it came across to actually trying to help people. That's what it came down to. And, you know, I always respect people that help other people on the come up or, you know, they help other people in other ways, you know, because there's just so much hatred out there nowadays. There's just so much misunderstanding. Like, there's just so much of a misunderstanding of people and other and other people and how people operate i find again guys this is a this has been a this has been great christmas time is coming guys and i hope you guys have a good christmas you guys have spent a lot of time with the family you know family is very important this time of year and to not take it for granted ever this is it for this episode guys i hope you guys enjoyed episode four i don't know if i'm gonna if the next episode is going to be part two because I'm going to be working on part two for this, obviously. And there's going to be a lot of more research put into that or just as much research put into that as this one. And another announcement, guys. I have social media accounts set up for this. Set up for this. I have them all in the description episode. I have it all in the description of this episode. Also, I don't think I've mentioned 
mention this throughout any of my podcast episodes, but the podcast logo of, you know, of my face, of the pop art, you know, that pop art style that I really enjoy the look of, that beautiful cover was created by a Fiverr user named Make Me Bark, and she is very, very talented at what she does, and she makes uh, very good podcast covers for cheap, and I included her Fiverr in the description and her Instagram. Now, I hope you guys like this episode. Also, I'm going to put my email in there. You guys can email me questions. You know, there could be inquiries, or you guys could actually email me to suggest topics that I could go over in future episodes of the podcast. Make sure you guys download and rate past episodes of the podcast, plus this one. Share it with your guys' family. It really would help me out, and I would really enjoy it if you guys did that. I want to try to get my message out there in a creative way, and I want to try to help people. That's why this podcast got started. But all right, guys, I'll see you later. Peace.